And the conclusion is colonization bad, Americans trash. Which, you know, I can't really disagree with, especially on this day. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Keep It Fictional. We have truly hit the summer now. And because of that, or maybe in honor of that, I wanted to talk about one of the things that I love most, exploration. So stories of exploration can take many forms. Perhaps you've read tales of tall ships setting sail to the edges of the earth, their masts jutting out into the sky, and the crash of waves clanging against their hull. Or perhaps you've read stories about a trucker staring down the endless miles of desert highway, pools of water shimmering on the horizon as heat rises from the blacktop. Or maybe you prefer to hear about the spacefarers staring out into that immense darkness and seeing the best and worst of themselves reflected back at them from amongst the supernovas. Exploration of the mind, the world, the future... All of these are things that fascinate me and sort of have me on the edge of my seat when it comes to stories. I love a space explorer. I love a road trip narrative. I love stories of exploring or reclaiming histories. I'm very excited to see what kind of exploration our book friends went on for our episode today. And perhaps the most intrepid explorer of them all, I'm going to have Virginia take us into territories unknown for our first book. Clearly, Gabriel does not know me very well. (laughs) The person who does not like to travel is the one who's going to start first. Because all the one that you just described, all those adventures sound so much grander than what I've got for you today. But anyway, for Fiona's episode, I know I did a nuns in space. For Corinne's episode, I did a cults in space. So it does make sense for me to go do a exploration in space, just like Gabriel said. That to me would be a little too obvious because I read science fiction. Anyway, so instead, I have decided to explore the uncharted territories of rereading. Long-time listeners would know that I don't reread ever because life is too short. But for this podcast, for you, Gabriel, just for you, I decided to reread a book that I read according to Goodreads in 2016. And this book probably has my favorite ending ever. And I also, you will know, I generally don't care for the ending. I'm only in for the journey. So I was very curious to know like what it would be like if I already know the ending and the ending is so good. Would I still enjoy this book? Every time I think about this book, I will go check and see, okay, what did the author has any new book coming out? But there have not been nothing until late last year when he published a memoir. And that's a very good reason why he has not written anything because apparently a few years ago, he fell down, cracked his skull in three places, had a brain hemorrhage, and he got rushed to the hospital. And then he should have been dead, according to the doctor, but he survived. They put him in a two-week coma. But when they got back out, he lost his sense of taste, lost his sense of smell, lost his sense of hearing. So the memoir was kind of about how he 
went through that, trying to figure out what happened to him and also his life afterwards. You know, really good reason why he hasn't written. And I'm so glad to know that you're okay. Like I've been kind of thinking about like how much I enjoyed this book. And ever since the memoir comes on, I'm like, you know what, maybe I should really go, maybe explore this book again. And the author definitely, even though it's not so grand adventures that Gabriel described just now, definitely took us, the readers and the protagonist Ben for a wild ride. Ben is kind of your ordinary, unremarkable guy. He lives in Maryland with his wife and three kids. He's got the kind of job that takes you on these business trips. And so when the book opens, he has just arrived at a remote country inn where he was supposed to go to like some business conference to meet some clients. And Ben was a bit early, in fact, a few hours early because that's the kind of guy Ben is. So he decided to go take a walk in the woods just behind the hotel. As he was walking along, following the path, of course, he was trying to make note of the markers that he see, like, you know, some birdhouses that they hung in the trees or some strange looking trees so that he can remember just in case, you know, on his way back. He wanted to make sure that he know that he's on the right track. And as he was walking along, he noticed that there was a person in front of him. And this person is dragging a body, a small body that doesn't seem to have the feet anymore. The body is wearing a cupcake printed skirt, a skirt that Ben recognized because it belongs to a girl that he just met in the hotel lobby. The girl was running around the hotel lobby and bumped into Ben, so, you know, he remembered her. And as Ben was watching this person dragging this body along, and he's like, oh no, this guy killed the girl. Oh my gosh. The guy looked up at Ben and the guy has a Rottweiler face, a mask, maybe Ben thought. And then as Ben tried to figure out what is going on, the guy started running towards Ben. And so Ben turned around, started running himself, crashed through all the woods, tried to find a way, tried to get away from this guy that probably killed somebody. And as he was running around, running around, he could hear like somebody chasing him. And then he tried to get as fast as he can. And finally, after a while, he came to a stop because he couldn't hear the person behind him anymore. And now Ben is completely lost. He has no idea where he is anymore. And so he will try to retrace his steps, try to find like, you know, places that he might recognize, but doesn't matter which way he goes. He, he doesn't know where he is. It just, everything just doesn't seem right anymore. Not only that, the sky is getting dark and that doesn't make sense because when he started out, it was just early in the afternoon. So like what happened? And then he tried to walk and walk some more. And finally, he came to a clearing where he can look up into the sky. And there are two moons in the sky. Ben is definitely not in the same world where he comes from earlier. This is the beginning of The Hike by Drew McGarry. All the stuff that I just described happened in about the first 10 pages. No, he took no time to plunge us right into the action. And what follow is sometimes terrifying, sometimes kind of funny, and 
always weird and bizarre and surreal. And the book has been described as kind of like a series of fairy tales. You know, there's sort of these elements in it. Like, for example, you're going to meet a giant who likes to eat humans. Cannibalism, everyone. There's going to be an old woman who made Ben pull out all the weeds from her garden before she would offer help to him. And when he finally did all that, the woman gave him free lousy magic seeds. And then there's also a warning to Ben, never stray from the path or else bad things will happen to you. So kind of like all these fairy tales elements, the book has also been compared to like an old school video game, like a text-based adventure game where you just see these random stuff, like a giant cricket that Ben has to fight in the attic before he can get at this giant red button that he knows somehow that he, he needs to use to get somewhere. Or he would get these random like feasts and buffets, you know, like, like as if like they need to replenish his energy. And he also actually come across an actual explorer from Spain. So another explorer thing going on here. So many, many more strange things. And each chapter brings a new audio for Ben. And it's so weird, so strange, so random. But yet, even though all his encounters seem random at first, as you learn more about Ben, you realize, wait a second, maybe this weirdness is all kind of tailor for Ben. There's some reason why he's meeting the kind of things he's going to meet. And I think the moment that you're going to realize, oh, wait, there is so much more than just this random string of weird little episodes that the author came up with, is that moment when you realize it is probably when you meet a grouchy, grumpy, foul-mouthed talking crab. Yes, crabs is also in this book. That whole episode with the talking crab is really touching. And despite all the weirdness that I just described, you're probably like, okay, I have no idea what's going on. There's some really emotional moments in the book also. The way Ben tries to remember his kids and try to like kind of almost like find substitutes for them. He's trying to draw them every day and he's really bad at drawing so he can't make, can make sense out of it. But yet like he tried because he... This is sort of the only way he could to try to remember what his kids look like. And so the author, um, in addition to writing novels, he also writes a lot about fatherhood. Um, and he talks about how like sometimes when you're a parent, you're just like, oh, just leave me alone for a second. I just want to have some alone time. But yet when you get to go away, like on a business trip, you're just like, you miss your kids so much. It's just this, what, what does it mean to be a parent? And so that's definitely featured in this book also. And I think what really works for me in the book, other than like the really spot on ending, is that. Ben never feels like like he never becomes a hero. You know, many, many stories, usually you put like a regular guy and you pit him against like a lot of like strange things and then he comes out like stronger and better. Like Ben doesn't. Like Ben doesn't. He remained this regular guy. He talks about having some of the mental health issues that he's having and he breaks down and cries frequently because what he's been through is just terrifying. And I appreciate that he never gains these weird powers. He's just Ben, you know, just regular old Ben. I finished this rereading in a, in a couple of settings. And at first I'm like, oh, look at me, like, you know, getting so much faster at reading these days. Well, no, apparently not, because it's just the kind of book, like every reviewer talk about how before you know it, you will like look up and suddenly you're halfway through the book. It's 
is that kind of book. You just get so sucked into the story. So yeah, I love this book. I wish the book it never ends. This second like um, second reading is still just as good. Even knowing the ending, still perfect. I still almost cry at the ending because it's just something about it. And I, I wish the book never ends, but for Ben's sake, I'm glad it did. The author, McGarry, calls it the Odyssey, but with cursing. So, you know, I encourage all of you to go on a journey with Ben, and if you're like us here on Keep It Fictional who love existential questions, this whole book is one big existential question. So hope you enjoy it. This is The Hike by Drew McGarry. All right. That's really cool. I love uh, the idea of, of the sort of like smaller stories. And I, of course, I'm a big video game fan. And so the idea that something feels a little bit like an old text-based video game on top of being a, a strange fairy tale exploration. Sounds like the kind of thing that I would get into. So thank you, Virginia. I am going to go next today. So I chose a nonfiction for today's episode. And it's a little bit of a weird nonfiction as well. Parts of it are historical. Parts of it are a bit like a travel guide. But all of it is weird. So this is Atlas Obscura. It's quite a beefy book. It's quite a big guy. And it's called An Explorer's Guide to the World's Hidden Wonders. This is the second edition. And it's been edited by Joshua Fower, Dylan Thuris, and Ella Morton. So Atlas Obscura actually started off as a website, which has grown in popularity since I first heard about it maybe five years ago. And what it is is a massive database of all the weird and wonderful things that are hiding in the corners of our world. So the book is a curated collection of some of the weirdest and the most interesting things you can find on every continent on the globe. Like any good atlas or travel guide, you can search by continent and then sort of narrow it down to either a country or a group of countries. And then for some like the United States and Canada, you actually also have sections like in the Canadian case, East versus West. And in the American case, it breaks it down a little bit more. There are descriptions of the different places, some information on where to find them, considerations for visiting, which is a really important part, some interesting facts. And if you're lucky, a lot of them have some really gorgeous pictures to go along with them. Some of the different things that you might encounter for an Atlas of the Obscure. We have the Microbia in Amsterdam, which is a zoo for bacteria, viruses, and other organisms that are invisible to the naked eye. In Iraq, you might find Saddam Hussein's copy of the Quran, which was written entirely using the 50 pints of blood that he donated over the years. We also have the self-explanatory Abu Dhabi Falcon Hospital, uh, the tree goats of Morocco, which feature argan trees infested with fruit-hungry goats that sort of jump into its branches and just kind of like go ham. They get their... They get their stuff. Uh, you might also want to know about the Dreamer's Gate in Australia, which was an unfinished art piece built on the site of a town of bushrangers, or the Farm of Human Remains in Knoxville, Tennessee, or even the Blood Red Waterfalls of Antarctica. So not all of these places are actually meant to be seen or traveled to. Some are in inaccessible without a guide. Some are dangerous. Some have cultural or religious significance that should prohibit you going to them, even if 
maybe technically you could. Um, and some of them have fallen into ruin. For instance, I believe there's also, I think it's in the UK, there's an underwater ballroom that they sometimes take people on tours to, but it's it's really sort of falling into ruin or something that you might want to go to and make sure there's like a guide around like the, I think there's a, there's a snake orgy that happens every year in Manitoba. So there's some interesting things in the book and you can use it as a bit of a travel guide, uh, but really I read it looking for inspiration. So collecting places that I might like to see someday or places that I might like to read about. In the editor's note at the beginning, they kind of address the two emotions that they want the reader to feel, wanderlust and wonderlust. So that feeling of wonder that can be so difficult to capture in a mundane world where you feel like you already know everything. So Atlas Obscura does a really good job, at least for me, about bringing that feeling of wonder and making me sort of question why the world is the way it is, why some of these things might have happened, whether that be from human causes, from natural causes, maybe some combination, or maybe, I mean, it sort of has to be one of those two or a combination of them, but some of them are just just weird enough. It makes you really appreciate the unknown and crave that sense of exploration. And I think reading it in book form is actually quite nice. I can look it up online and it's definitely easier to find very specific information online. But one of the nice things about having something like this in a book is that it gives you more of the ability to flip through it and actually sort of just take in things that you would have never thought to look for versus if I was traveling, maybe I'm like, okay, what's around Cape Breton? And I'm like, there's a scarecrow farm in someone's backyard. So it's a little bit different. You might use the website if you wanted to sort of have some very, very specific information, but the book is kind of going to give you the best, best. So that is Atlas Obscura. And we have the second edition here at the library. We also have the first edition. That is my recommendation for perhaps the world's weirdest travel guide. And now I have a question for my book friends. The first part of this question is, do you read while traveling? And the follow-up question is, what mode of transportation would you most like to read on? And if you're feeling creative, which one would you be least likely to read on? Um, I do read while I'm traveling. I usually pack quite a few library books with me to my own detriment and to the detriment of my suitcase because I don't read ebooks. I only read physical books um, just as a personal preference. So I make bad choices when I travel. I would argue and would probably fight that the only mode of transportation that you can read on is a train the ideal form of all transportation. And one that I cannot read on is flying because it's a tin coffin that you're trapped on, breathing in all of the recycled air and you can't escape. I too am, am an ambitious packer. I always bring like, you know, several books and then load up my phone with audiobooks as well. But really the only time that I read when I'm traveling is in transit. So like, it's good to have it for those trips, like the first part and the last part, but I'm always like, oh, I don't have time to read all of this. And on that note, I am going to disagree and say that the best travel to read are in the car, which for me is an audiobook, or on the plane, where I can get a whole lot of audiobook done. If I'm traveling and I'm on a train, I want to look out the window 
and appreciate it. If I'm on a bus, I want to look out the window. Although I can do that with an audiobook. Hmm. But I also want to like hear, I like to eavesdrop. I don't like to eavesdrop on the plane. It's stressful. Everywhere else, you know, like when you're on, everybody's happy on a train. Like Kareem says, you're not stuffed in a metal box. It's beautiful. It's charming. Uh, and I like to listen to what other people are talking about. I also very much like to read while traveling, but I don't travel very often anymore. And when I do, it's usually not like a particular long distance. So I tend to pack a little bit more lightly. And if I was to pack a substantial amount of books, then like 90% of what I'm carrying would just be books, basically. So in that regard, not too big of a traveler or too big of a reader while traveling, just because it hasn't been going on very much recently. But I would also have to disagree with both Fiona and Kareen and say that a boat is the best place to read on, particularly a ferry. Ferry to Vancouver Island or to some of the other islands around BC, that's a good place to be reading, I think. I'm just going to cut in and actually say Mark is the most incorrect because the boat is the best view for looking out at the sea, pretending that I'm like this old grizzled man who is looking over his little kingdom like I'm some lighthouse keeper, like If you can see land, that's the best. But even if it's just like pure ocean, I want to be looking out there and then thinking about the horrific concept of what might be beneath me. Just going to put it out there. For four hours? For Yes. For four minutes, maybe. I'm going to go agree with Mark, go in and read a book. There's nothing to do. You're trapped on boat. I didn't even mention boat because boat is worse. Boat is the worst form of transportation invented. And I understand that we have to cross this whole water thing, but do we? Do we? Can we just leave and respect it? But I think Gabriel's question is like, what is the best place for you to read, right? So boat is good because you're stuck. There's nothing to do. So no, 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 no. On a boat, you have to be constantly vigilant and have your escape planned at any moment because the boat can sink. The boat can sink at any moment and you have to have your escape plan and you have to be vigilant and you have to be awake. Just sit next to the the life vest. So that way you're the first one to get it. And you don't, you can just put the book down and put it on. It's not, it's not like a plane where you have to go through this whole production, put the mask on, you strap yourself in, you have to like listen to a person explain what to do and everything. And like, and like if a plane crashes, you're just done. You're just done. Like you have no control over whether you survive or not. And that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Amateur mistake to go by the lifeboats because that's where everyone goes. You need to go the opposite way of the herd goes because that's that's going to tip it. You cannot relax. You constantly have to be watching. How does the crew look? Do they seem relaxed? Are they having whispered conversations in the corner? Like, what's the vibe on this boat right now? I will say, usually if I'm on a boat and I'm traveling, I'm also controlling the boat. And so it's a little bit different. Sorry, controlling it with your mind or like... I don't take ferries that that often, uh, but I do. I got my can sail license before I got my driver's license. And so I can do like a sailboat. So I'm usually like doing the rigging and stuff like that or um, like in a canoe or something like that. And so there's a little bit more of a hands on aspect with a ferry. I'm not technically in charge but again like i said i have this like little fantasy that usually happens and so like i am emotionally in charge of the well-being and i sort of stalk up and down the halls as if i'm like the the captain um often very dramatic music i'm listening to it just really like 
does the whole thing. Maybe if I'm feeling particularly um, carefree, I'm actually more of a Jack Sparrow type and not the captain and someone who should never be the captain. But really, it is a little bit of just sort of an imaginative experience, I would say. I don't think that I read that much on a boat. And in fact, I'm pretty bad for not reading while traveling, period. Uh, maybe the only <laughs> the only one here and maybe surprising to almost nobody. Um I am far less likely to read something, or if I am, it's really almost always an ebook. Like it's something that I've already sort of downloaded and can be brought on my phone because I pack too many things and then I can't fit any books in it in my in my luggage. And so I end up not really doing that much reading. I mean, I'll listen to podcasts. I'll listen to music and I'll write, but I don't do a lot of reading on trips. Um, I'd say the worst form of transportation to read on is probably like a bicycle. Unless <laughs> unless it's like a tandem bicycle, in which case, if I'm sitting at the back, perhaps I could be doing the reading. Um, but But the best, I think the best case scenario for me is a plane because I'm just fully stuck. Fully stuck, and especially because uh, the Google Docs app on my phone drains the entire battery very quickly, and so writing on a plane is very limited. Uh, so that's my that's my take on it. And thank you, everybody, for providing your opinions on boats, trains, and uh, planes. We've covered all of Transportation Day. Uh, that should be one of our that should be one of our topics. <laughs> is that your characters have to the they have to take some transport in the future all right all okay right. i want to hear what virginia has to say we we all know yeah you know what i was going to say that i don't travel so but i do if i do occasionally do the road trip thing of course you're not going to be driving and reading at the same time so that's not going to happen but i do pack books um and same thing it would be a definitely a e-reader um because it could hold so much and i like to read multiple books and if i don't like this one i can like read the next one so yeah definitely e-reader or on my phone or whatever um but yeah so no i don't really come on fiona you know that <laughs> that's why and gabriel also know that's why Gabriel's like yeah no we don't need to hear from her I just like to hear you say it. I, don't... <laughs> I wasn't sure if the question got swept up in your strong opinions about <laughs> transportation. <laughs> anyway, thank you, everybody. Thanks, book friends. Um, I think I will <laughs> pass it over to Fiona and see what kind of exploration they went. All right. Yeah, this is an interesting topic. I wouldn't say that um, reading about exploration is usually my thing. Emotional exploration, yes. Um, but I do, I do occasionally like to read about space. So that is what I, I went with today. And I went back way back to 1950 for my book. And I actually chose, uh, what I learned is called a fix up novel, which means I guess that some of the stories were written previously, and then they kind of like write extra stories to tie it all in together to be one book. So it is connected short stories that vary quite a bit. It is Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles. I also had never read Ray Bradbury before, so that was a good bucket list and, and definitely will continue with that. I feel like I could talk about this book forever because there's so many, so many stories in it and they're they vary quite a lot, even though they're all supposed to be about Mars. 
one of the first ones, we have a Martian housewife, strikingly similar to human housewives of the 1940s, who starts to have like kind of saucy dreams about a um, about a guy from Earth. And before this, her Martian husband is just really like negligent. And then suddenly he's all jealous and pays all of this attention to her because he's like, why are you having those dreams about that crazy Earth man? And that kind of lays the groundwork for a bunch of other wild stories. One in which I think it's the second expedition to Mars. The first expedition goes missing. The second, they arrive and uh, are pretty much immediately put into an insane asylum because the Martians have the ability to read minds. They can also, they can also, uh, what's it called? Like turn themselves into other people. They can shapeshift. That's it. And they are able to like project their, their fantasies. So essentially the, 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 who's like, he's like a Dr. Martian is like, oh, wow, this is a really impressive, like, like projection of your craziness. You really think you're from earth. You like really created this spaceship. And then it all goes south and they find out that they're not actually crazy. They're actually from Earth. Uh, And it goes on from there for like quite a long period of time. And what is quite interesting is that um, there have been many editions of this, some of which include new stories, some that omit them. They actually like they I think it was like 1979, maybe or maybe 1997. I might be getting that backwards. Um, They put out a new edition of it and they actually changed the period of time it took place in, they moved it up 31 years because they were like, oh, this is too close uh, to, to uh, the time it is now. And it, and it, you know, sort of takes away some of the, the mystery about it. So uh, some like really interesting things that have happened with this book throughout history. And I think really at its core, it is one of those books that, that it really tells us about the 1950s more than anything else. It's not particularly imaginative in the way of sci-fi. It's really more of like a reflection of America, basically, and, and colonization. And the conclusion is colonization bad, Americans trash. Which, you know, I can't really disagree with, especially on this day. But it is like, it, I, I kept thinking, oh, I wish I read this in high school because I would have been like, yeah. Um, but it's not a lot. It's not particularly nuanced. It's it's extremely white and it is only and it's extremely patriarchal. Uh, it is only Americans who seemingly white Americans who colonize Mars and pretty much every story except for that lovely housewife one is about men and and women sort of exist to be the voice of reason that the men don't listen to so it definitely has its limitations but I think it's totally still worthwhile worth reading now it's it's interesting reflection and it's it's was almost like watching uh Star Trek in the the episodicness of like you don't know one episode you might get a space whale and the next episode you might be transported to an alternative victorian london which brings me to the craziest story in all of this i don't even like like it made sense when i read that it was a fix-up novel but this is not typical of the other stories but in one story when mars has already been colonized they actually go through like a banning slew you know, very Ray Bradbury, where stories are banned. Basically, anything fantastical is not allowed. And 
there's this one guy who's obsessed with Edgar Allan Poe and he gets really mad and spends his life planning to orchestrate this ridiculous idea. And he builds the House of Usher on Mars and he fills it with mechanized ghosts and ghouls. Then he befriends all of the important people on Mars, the diplomats, uh, anybody with sway. And then he invites them to the House of Usher for a party and he murders them all. It was bonkers. Like, and I just like the whole thing really kept me on my toes and like just in enjoying myself because you it was such a mashup of like, what is going to come next? And some of it was really thoughtful and really interesting. Some of it was just a bonkers banana pants. And then there is the story where there's a guy who thinks he's the last man on Mars, but he does then manage to contact a woman and he's going to a city to find her because they're the last people on Mars. But oh no, she's fat and ugly. <laughs> Um, so that was definitely my least favorite story and lacked a lot of imagination. Thankfully, that was not really typical of the other ones. So I like, I do highly recommend this, especially of like a way to like, like just to, I like to get a feel for literature at different times. And definitely I enjoy sci-fi, but I don't really, I haven't gotten a lot at the, like the pulpy roots of sci-fi. So I definitely enjoyed this and the, the kind of like manicness of it. And I think it holds up still worth, worth reading. However many, like 62 years later, no more than that. Oh my gosh. What year is it? 72 years later when we are apparently supposed to be in like a nuclear, a nuclear uh, war right now. Yeah, I won't touch that. But definitely very interesting to go back and read that. And I will certainly be reading more Ray Bradbury. So that is The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. Lots of different um, editions. So you might want to research which one you are reading first. Make sure you get The House of Usher in yours because you're definitely going to want to read that story. Thank you, Fiona. Wasn't really expecting that wide array of tales that Mr. Bradbury was going to bring us, for better or for worse. Uh, just goes to show on this podcast, we support women's rights and women's wrongs. It's okay if you're doing if you're doing something a little a little weird. Uh, strange housewife on Mars. It's okay. Um, <laughs> I think that maybe we should head over to Kareen and see what Kareen has for us in her exploration. Yes, in my exploration book that I'm going to talk about. So it arrives suddenly in a small village. The catacombs where the bodies are kept suddenly collapse. And when the people go to investigate, they find a strange man wearing strange garb climbing up a set of stairs. He explains that he is the king of a long-buried kingdom trapped beneath the earth by a lunatic magician. And with his final breath, just before he crumbles to dust, he promises that whoever kills the magician will inherit his kingdom. Well, with an offer like that, how can anyone refuse? This brings adventurers from all corners of the world to explore the dungeon. Oh, is this a Dungeons and Dragons thing? A kind of, yeah. 
So, of course, when you have dungeons and you have adventurers, you need uh, cottage industries to support them, like taverns. Uh, you are going to need armors. You are going to need magic suppliers, magical item dealers. And this kind of strange economy builds around this dungeon where groups of adventurers constantly come to try and get a chance at maybe winning this kingdom, getting some treasures, slaying some creatures for some bragging rights. And so that's what uh, Laos and his group are trying to do. However, they are soundly thumped by a red dragon. His sister is eaten and they all die. Thankfully, in this world and in the Dungeons and Dragons world, dying is kind of like a temporary inconvenience. If you think about it as kind of like a game, it's more like uh, do not pass go, do not collect $200, but you kind of whip back right to the end. However, when uh, Laos wakes up, he realizes again his sister is in the belly of a dragon, which is kind of a bummer. Um, half of his party has resigned because of contract negotiation problems, um, which leaves him only with Chilcuck, who is kind of like, I guess, would be like your halfling rogue, and Marcel, who is a half-elven mage, who is, how to put this, a little too interested in necromancy like you could have a little bit of interest in necromancy and maybe kind of fiddling around with like life and death but she's a little too interested so he has to rescue his sister obviously but he's kind of a little short on funds their last revivification kind of sapped them of all of their party funds and they don't have enough money to buy provisions and so Laios comes up with a dangerous, disturbing idea. What to do when you don't have any food? Well, you go to the most forbidden meat of all. If you are going to slice and dice those monsters, why don't you slice and dice and fricassee them? And while you're at it, get a little uh, gelatinous cube and slice that on as a nice little sauce and maybe get one of the sentient mushroom people and slice them on for just that mm, extra burst of flavor. At first, the rest of his party members are, hmm, how shall we put this, horrified? But somehow he manages to convince them with the help of, because this is a Dungeons and Dragons adventure, a dwarf named Senshi, who just really, at the end of the day, wants to eat a red dragon steak. And if he has to fight his way through all 21 levels of this dungeon to do this, he shall. He shall to get at the finest cut of the rarest meat. If you've ever wanted to explore strange places and eat your way through a new country or town, sometimes literally, you should definitely check out what I think is actually one of the funniest and most intriguing manga that's come out in the past couple of years, which is Delicious in Dungeon by Ryoko Wei. The art in it is fantastic. If you are a fan of any dungeon delving adventure or fantasy and are well aware of all the tropes within, this is such a fantastic romp. It starts out as a bit of a kind of like a little travelogue or as your, your basic rescue mission. And then as you get further into the series, you realize that there's much more going on to this dungeon and much more going on to the world and much more going on with this kind of like strange economy of dungeons and how they just kind of like appear in places. And this is just something that can happen. And how do you regulate that? And which governing body should be in charge of that? And if you're policing it, what's that going to look like? If, again, you're looking for a travelogue or if you're a bit of a foodie who's always wanted to eat a manticore, 
this is the book for you. Or even if you have a D&D group that's having trouble finding a schedule that works for all of you, I would heartily recommend that you pick up this fantastic series. I think it's almost finished. Um, every one of them is a total joy. And that is Delicious in Dungeon. All right. You hit multiple areas of exploration with that one. <laughs> That sounds great for all of our D&D fans that we might have, both within the podcast and inside of the podcast. All right. And I think that brings us to Mark with our last exploration. All righty. Thank you, Gabriel. So today I will be talking about 80 Days by A.C. Esguera. And just a little bit of background on this, the artist-author this work was originally a very short sort of novella length sort of comic that was published in 2016. It won a Prism Comics Queer Press Grant, which is one of the reasons why it was able to be later expanded into this larger full work. It's all in one volume, but it's also very like large size, hefty hardcover book. It's very much very big compared to your standard graphic novel or manga. And also just a note on the art, it's very inspired by noir and steampunk and things like that. It very much has that kind of dark shading, black and white kind of style that you often associate with noir. And if you check out Esguera's uh, Instagram account, they post a lot of redraws and pictures and things like that on there. Some of them are of like actual scenes in noir films, start both the characters replaced with characters from this book. So that's kind of an interesting little uh, meta artwork thing going on there. Uh, just as like a little quick background on this, the universe of this story because it's very much inspired by late 19th century early 20th century europe but in like a fictionalized kind of version of it you don't hear about countries like italy or germany or austria but you can tell that a lot of these uh, organizations are very much based on them like there's a mafia group later on the group that's very much supposed to be like a kind of sicilian italian mafia type group one of the main the villainous organization of this story is called avo avo or aviation vocational order and this is essentially like a giant conglomerate that started out as a aeronautics and radio communications kind of coalition, but it's sort of morphed into like an almost colonial empire now that's sort of spreading across the continent. It exerts massive economic power. It's uh, military power now. It can, it's invading countries, taking them over. It's looting cultural works and artistic works and instituting an uneven citizenship system that kind of empire that you sort of associate with that kind of period of Europe, sort of taking over the continent. And essentially, Avo is trying to uh, stifle freedoms, create a system where only they allow people to immigrate from one country to another, to work, to fly a plane, to operate radios and things like that. Very much you must be regulated or approved by Avo in order to engage in these kinds of activities. So within the series, you kind of see this kind of... Um, the freedom to explore versus the restrictions that are being placed on people by this new sort of uh, authoritarian system that's encroaching over the continent. And in the series, there's three main characters here. There's Jay, Fix, and Beryl. Uh, so Jay Corviday, as he's known, is a pilot rising in the ranks of AVO. He lives on the eastern side of the continent, the country called Easterly. A lot of these countries have directional based names there's like southerly and central and, and western and like all these kinds of names that very much indicate where they're located in the continent uh jay's not interested at all in politics or the status that he gets from being a pilot he really just wants to be able to fly his plane barrel to be able to go across the continent as he pleases and to essentially just conduct his life as he pleases 
And this sort of brings us to our second protagonist, Sable, because Sable's a longtime friend of Jay. They're both based from the same airfield in Easterly called Treehouse. But Sable is taking a somewhat different direction. She's now a high-ranking intelligence officer in AVO, and she's quickly risen through the ranks because of her skills and intelligence. And even though she disagrees with many of AVO's methods, she's remained loyal to them because she sort of believes in making small changes from within an organization rather than openly rebelling and starting a war against Avo. And our third and final main character is Fix. He's sort of like a master communication specialist and a thief type kind of character. Um, his last name, Volpez, is sort of means like Fox in some different language in the sort of, uh, what do you call it, taxonomical structure. So he kind of has that kind of a sneaky kind of aspect to his character. He's created basic sophisticated co-cracking devices like radios and retrofitting technologies to evade detection by AVO. And he sort of is a figure in a resistance movement to break up AVO's influence to create a kind of coalition against them to stop their spread across the continent. And the book itself is sort of broken down into four different sections. Each one focuses on a different character. The first part is focused on Jay's perspective, the second Sable's third fix. And then the final section of the book incorporates all of them, all their different perspectives into one kind of whole. So it kind of has this interesting structure where you get to see each of the different main characters' perspective on events to see how they feel, what their sort of aims and desires are in this kind of universe. And within the story itself, we kind of have Jay as our initial focus point since he's the start, the main character at the start of the book. And he sort of is going about his business as a pilot working on barrel when one day he sort of meets this mysterious man who is trying to get him to take him across the continent into another country without introducing himself. He doesn't really know who this person is. Why is this person trying to get me to do this? But he agrees to do it anyways, because he's trying to help this person out. And this person, as it turns out, is Fix. So as Jay takes him on to sort of go across the continent as his co-pilot, his navigations person for the time being, because he needs some help on his plane, it's a real help to him. So he's like, agrees to help him out. But as it turns out later on, that Fix was called a no class in this universe of Avo's sort of ethnic system, where if you're from a particular country, you're considered no class unless you are granted a, a class status by Avo. So because of this, Fix is detained and told that he's not allowed to enter the country of the country of Central, which is where they're headed, unless he has a job. But he can't get a job unless he has a passport. He can't get a passport unless he has a job. So it sort of has this weird sort of tautological, like, you're kind of screwed no matter what because you're a no-class person. And then outraged by this, Jay sort of says, well, what are you talking about? He's my navigator and hires him to be a sort of like a full-time member of his crew on barrel to fly with him as a sort of co-pilot in his endeavors. And Fix is overjoyed by this because he, he knows that he needs to get out of his bind. As it goes on, Jay and Fix kind of start to develop a sort of partnership that's uh, much more than just work-related. They very much, this very much is like a queer romance situation. You can sort of tell very early on that they have uh, feelings for each other that go beyond just their professional relationship. And sort of as the story develops, eventually Fix is discovered by Avo to be much more than what he originally appears. He's accused of forging passports and doing all these other kinds of manipulative little schemes to try and subvert Avo's order. And Jay refusing to abandon him, they sort of get embroiled in like this kind of struggle to escape from Avo. But eventually Jay is captured and Fix is sort of forced to 
try and find a way to rescue Jay to try and carry his plans to subvert Abel's order, whereas Sable is sort of on the other side of the conflict, so to speak. As she sort of is torn between her allegiance to Abel, but also for her feelings for her old friend in Jay and how she tries to reconcile her feelings. She doesn't agree with what's going on. She sort of wants to do the right thing, but also doesn't want it to develop into a larger conflict to, to portray the trust that's been placed in her by her superiors and all these sorts of things. So this is sort of like the main sort of thrust that goes on in the later state, the second and third and fourth parts of the story, how they, how these different characters are trying to carry out their goals, sort of just maintain their own freedom to make their own choices, to be able to explore the continent as they please. And that's sort of like the main kind of tie to the exploration aspect. There's lots of aeronautics, lots of plane terminology, there's lots going on with trains as well. And just the sort of idea of going across the continent, this continent spanning narrative and travel aspect of it. So if you're interested in stories that involve like politics, queer romance, this kind of early 20th century kind of setting, then you may also enjoy 80 Days. Cool. The art for that one looks really, really cool as well. So that is a really, really great one to end off on. And there were so many different types of exploration that you could get from this, which is part of the point of why I wanted to keep it open. Not everybody is going to want to read a road trip narrative. And so I didn't force that on anybody. Instead, gave you all the other options and just sort of made you vaguely tied into exploration. And it wouldn't be a Gabriel episode without a last minute plug for a video game as we need. It's not an open world video game surprising anyone who would think about exploration. This one won a bunch of awards in 2017 and 2018. If you have never heard of the game What Remains of Edith Finch, it is very much worth looking into. It actually plays a little bit like a like a book or like a story. It follows Edith as she learns what happened to all of the members of her family. She is the last of the the Finches and she goes through the big Finch house that's almost a little bit like the Winchester house. It's strange and everything has been added on and it's a little bit serpentine. And the genre and the way you play through the game changes depending on which Finch member of the family you were learning about. Some look like comics. Some, some are very um, like you're, you're jumping, you're exploring, you're moving through the world. And she's learning why each one of them died in strange ways and unexpected ways. This game had me sobbing like a baby multiple times for some of these beautiful, beautiful stories. It also has some queer representation in it, and it is sort of an exploration both of human history, of what genealogy can bring, but also the sort of different experiences that you can have in life. And it is a very explorative video game for that sense. So that was What Remains of Edith Finch. And it is an indie game. So even if your computer's not that good, you could still download it. <laughs> so no excuses. No. And this is a book podcast. So plenty of excuses not to play the video games that I recommend. However, however, don't limit yourself in terms of storytelling mediums. All right. Go out. Explore. Find some other options for things try a different story. Maybe it's a maybe it's a personal exploration for you. Maybe you're experimenting with rereading a book or maybe you're going to read a story about exploration. We'll see. 
all of these are worth it. Go enjoy your summers. Explore. Goodbye. <laughs> Don't take a boat. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> Don't die in a plane crash. Don't die in a plane crash, everyone. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Thank you.